I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Arlene Aaron Hahn, the head of global technology transactions at White and Case. Arlene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, how you came to practice in technology transactions. Secondly, how that practice has evolved over your 15 years in the field. Third, your work in diversity and inclusion at White and Case. And then finally, how you decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you came to be a lawyer, and how you came to have the practice you do. Sure thing. So I was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, which I don't think most people would guess by looking at me. My parents were both immigrants to the US. My father was a North Korean refugee who had escaped from North Korea with his mother and siblings on foot, kind of sound of music style through the mountains, and then lied about his age and provenance to get into the South Korean public school system and worked his way up to graduating second in his class at Seoul National University, which is and was the top university in Korea. My mom, on the other hand, was from an upper middle class family in the southern part of South Korea. And she met my father when she was in medical school, which was also pretty exceptional for a woman at that time. So needless to say, I came from two very high achieving parents who were both minorities and immigrants. And I mention this because I really do think it's fundamental to both my identity and why and how I practice law. But both my parents were doctors and moved to the U.S. to do their residencies. But my mother never actually practiced medicine since she had to raise kids. And I am the fourth daughter, or as my parents would very candidly put it, the fourth failed attempt at a son. And I was very much raised to be a doctor just like my parents. And since I didn't want to disappoint them again, I went to MIT and I majored in biology and I fully intended to be a doctor. But I think I realized around my junior year, which is when you have to study for the MCAT, that I wasn't as interested in my biology courses and my pre-med courses as I was in other courses that I had taken. I was a teaching assistant for organic chemistry, which I loved for the chemistry, but not so much for the biology. And I had taken some fascinating courses at MIT in words and rhetoric, and I had audited a course from Harvard on the art and science of negotiation. And those were the classes that really spoke to me. And so even though I had never met a lawyer until I went to law school, and even though I knew I was going to be disappointing my parents again, the law just appealed to me more. And it felt like even if law didn't pan out and didn't work out for me, it would give me more options. You know, Once you go down the medical school route, it seemed really hard to turn back. It's four years of school. You have to get the cadaver. You get your residency. It's a whole thing. But lawyers, I felt like, didn't necessarily have to stay lawyers if they didn't like it. They could become CEOs or entrepreneurs or or producers or or journalists. And so I took the LSAT. I did well. And I applied to a handful of schools with the goal of always ending up in New York City. And I guess in the tradition of three-letter acronym institutions, I went to NYU Law which was truly the greatest place for me because it had students and faculty who were collaborative and supportive and globally minded. And since I didn't know anything about law, it was really my peers and professors at NYU who helped me out. I was on Law Review. And because I had a science background, my classmates and co-editors told me to try patent and IP law. So I did. I took those courses and I really enjoyed them. So in 1999, which is when 
I did my 2L summer, you know, the big question at that time was whether or not to chase the dot-com craze. A lot of young lawyers were being hired fresh out of law school to go out West and, and work for dot-coms, especially those lawyers who were interested in tech or IP like I was. So I really did wonder at the time whether I was making the wrong decision by going to a law firm. But again, I think since my parents were immigrants and I was so risk averse that I stuck with the law firm route, which I felt like would be a sure thing. And I'd always had these dreams of, of sending my parents my first paycheck, which I thought, you know, I can be sure I can do that at a law firm. So not a lot of major New York big law general practice firms at the time had IP practices or strong IP practices. Some of them didn't even have IP practices since that was kind of the era of IP boutique law firms. But after interviewing at a lot of the IP boutiques and general practice firms, I decided to summer at one of the few major firms that did have a leading IP practice at the time. And I have to say that turned out to be one of many lucky decisions in my career because a lot of those IP boutique firms, Penny and Edmonds, um, Kenyon and Kenyon, uh, Fish and Neve are, are no longer around. And by the time I was a second year, the dot-com bubble had burst too. So I learned pretty quickly just how lucky I could be. So in the late 90s, situate for listeners who may not be as familiar with the trajectory of IP, and even into the late 90s and beyond, IP was really viewed as very much of a specialist transaction that was not integrated even in firms focused on tech companies, into a corporate practice. You obviously had IP litigation, you had patent law, which was its own separate field. But these, again, were not viewed as critical for a mainstream corporate practice. Absolutely. That's exactly how it was viewed. IP was very much a niche practice. There were patent lawyers and boutique firms that really specialized in this area, particularly in litigation or prosecution of patents or counseling. But most of the general practice law firms on the East Coast, particularly in New York City, they were general practice firms. They didn't have robust IP practices. They might have a couple lawyers here or there that dabbled in IP, but certainly nothing that was a standalone tech transactions practice. And most of it at the time was IP litigation focused. And you started down the IP litigation route when you began your practice as an associate, correct? Yes, absolutely. I didn't have that much experience in law. I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I had a tech background. And so a lot of people told me I should be a patent lawyer. And I did take those courses. I enjoyed them. And I started my career in, in patent and IP litigation and counseling. In fact, one of my first assignments as an associate was assisting and drafting a validity opinion for a patent owned by one of the major oil and gas companies on a unique fuel composition. And I remember really enjoying it because I was able to take the rigorous technical training that I received at MIT and couple it with the legal analysis that I'd gotten from NYU and use both sides of my brain to really figure out solutions to what was a technical and legal issue. So describe your practice in your first years of being a lawyer and how you transitioned from a litigation practice to a tech transactions practice. Absolutely. I started as an IP litigator and counselor. So I did not just patent litigation and patent counseling and a little bit of patent prosecution in the very beginning, but also things like trade secret misappropriation and trademark infringement and copyright infringement. 
as well as protection of trademarks and copyrights. And I really enjoyed all of that work. In retrospect, I have to say that it provided me with a really excellent foundation to become a transactional lawyer. There's a saying that when you're a litigator, you gain T-shaped expertise. You know, it's narrow, but extremely deep. And so when you litigate a patent infringement action, you learn very deeply and intimately the intricacies of patent law. And it's the same for, you know, trade secret misappropriation or trademark infringement or copyright infringement. And that deep knowledge can be critical when you're negotiating an IP-driven transaction or M&A deal because you really understand how patents work and how IP protection works. I wish I could say that I had the foresight to have mapped it all out in advance and that I knew all the while that I was going to be a technology transactions lawyer ultimately. But again, I think I was just fortunate enough to have been open to opportunities and to have had that opportunity open up to me. When I was a sixth-year associate, my law firm had had a long-standing secondment program with Panasonic. And so they had asked me to move to Osaka, where Panasonic is headquartered, and work in Panasonic's IP rights operations company, which is kind of a pseudo outside counsel, but in-house at Panasonic. And I was really excited for the challenge, not only because it allowed me to learn a new skill set, which was going to be a little more transactional, but I got to live abroad in a country that I'd never contemplated living in. And also, I, I was the first woman who had ever been asked to take that secondment, uh, which I think this says a lot about you know the time as well. So I moved to Osaka. I lived there for a little over a year working there. And I helped Panasonic's in-house teams with licensing agreements, patent purchases, settlement agreements, and other transactional matters. And when I returned from Osaka, my boss at the time said, the firms thought about it, we're creating a standalone technology and IP transactions practice, and we want you to join. And this was about 2007, 2008. And so even though I didn't have a ton of experience, I had really enjoyed the transactional work I had done at Panasonic. And so I took the leap and I moved over and I've been doing tech and IP transactions ever since. And you made that transition as tech transactions was becoming a standalone practice, correct? I mean, you'd always had these kinds of agreements, but they were done in-house or maybe they were done by corporate lawyers. This was not a specialty that law firms even recognized until about the last 10 or 15 years. Yes, absolutely. I think that's definitely true for the East Coast. I think there were certainly law firms on the West Coast that were ahead of the curve on that, you know, in Silicon Valley. But on the East Coast, and certainly in New York, it was pretty rare to have a standalone tech transactions group. In fact, I remember when we formed it thinking, how are we going to have enough work? Because up to that point, we were doing transactions here and there, help on a settlement agreement, help on a license agreement, but it didn't seem like it could possibly be the bread and butter practice that it's definitely become. And I think that was just my naivete in not understanding how rapidly technology was changing and just how necessary that expertise was becoming. And now I have to say, technology transactions practices are historically always busy. I mean, there's always a technology transaction to do, even if the M&A markets are slow and there's not as much tech-driven M&A, people are using tech in down markets. And so it can be counter-cyclical then. So yeah, I I think I was just really lucky again and fortunate to have seen that opportunity and been able to join when I did. And was there a specific transaction or even a piece of a transaction where you realized you really liked the combination of the technology and your IP background in a more corporate 
law context? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was my time at Panasonic. I was helping their in-house counsel across all of their various product streams. And I remember thinking it's so different to be working on something that's a collaborative deal where both sides are winning. My last day, actually, on the job, I was negotiating a cross-license agreement with a major global international company on the other side. And even though it was an incredibly painful negotiation, this was a company from a country that had a very different culture and very different working style than Japan. So there was a lot of communication barrier. There was a lot of substantive barrier. There was a lot of issues in the negotiation. We didn't end up finishing until 3 a.m. And so I had my sad goodbye party cakes sitting on my desk and everyone had left already. I felt so gratified because I had helped these two parties bridge this gap and come up with an agreement that really was a winner for both of them. And they could both walk away after that negotiation feeling like they gained something. And, And that was really gratifying to me. Describe your practice, the kinds of issues that you see over and over, kind of the range of technologies that you work with. What does an average day or week or month in your practice look like? I'm laughing internally because I think there were a lot of things I loved about being a litigator. But what I really love about being a technology transactions lawyer is that everything's constantly changing. So I get that question a lot. What does my day look like? And I can honestly never tell you an answer because issues are always coming up. Matters are coming up. Transactions are coming up. Technology is changing. And so it's really difficult to predict other than large major deals and major transactions that you know are going to have a certain cadence to them. It's really hard to predict what any given day or any given month is going to look like in my practice. But that's what I find really challenging, exciting, right? That's why I like working in tech is because the technology is always changing the nature of the work that we do. So that's always a new challenge. And then are there specific issues that you see over and over and over? You know, there aren't really specific issues. Again, tech transactions, because it encompasses such a large variety of industries and issues, I would say in a standalone tech transaction practice, there aren't a lot of repeat issues beyond, of course, what you'd see in M&A and other corporate transactions where there really is kind of a body of market precedent and custom that usually applies. But there are fundamental questions that arise in nearly every deal, which is, you know, who owns the IP? How do you know they own it? How is it protected? And what rights does your client have? I will say there are a couple of fact patterns that you tend to see in diligence of tech and IP-driven transactions. One of them is where you have an acquisition target that's a startup or relatively young, and it was founded by some young engineers who worked at major tech giants, and they had a good idea. They decided to start a company, and they didn't have a lot of money at the time, so they used one of those automated legal document preparation services and may not have papered everything correctly and may not have transferred the IP in the way that they wanted or gotten the releases that they need. And so those are issues that you really want to diligence correctly. And in an M&A deal, you never want IP or technology to be the last issue on the table. And so it's pretty rare for there to be a, a true deal killer. But I've certainly had deals where the target had this old agreement sitting on the shelves that it forgot about, where it didn't have any leverage, and the counterparty clearly took advantage of them. And it's essentially a poison pill for any kind of acquisition. So in those situations, you do have to work with your counsel to see if there are creative structures or ways to address the risks that are raised by those agreements. 
You mentioned that your work for a year at Panasonic was critical in your transition from being a litigator to being a tech transactions lawyer. Did you consider or have you ever considered going in-house or what do you like about the law firm practice of tech transactions that has kept you in that spot? So I will make a confession. I did consider going in-house once when I was a third year. I interviewed with MTV. And I decided ultimately not to go for an in-house role. But other than that, I have to say that I've really enjoyed private practice. I enjoy the variety of the work. And that's not just from a pure law firm practice. Obviously, you have lots of clients, you have lots of different matters that cross your desk. But from a pure tech transactions perspective, it's really exciting. This is an area where things are constantly changing and constantly evolving. I remember when I was a, an associate, one of my annual projects that I was tasked with was to do the annual update of a treatise on intellectual property by a partner. And it was a pretty famous treatise. So every year I would update the citations, I would get new case law, and I would summarize it and put it in the treatise. But because of the technology changing and the IP changing every year, I often have to rewrite entire chapters of the treatise. And I remember there was one chapter that was called, I think, Multimedia and the Law. I think that was one of the first titles of it. And it talked about floppy disks and CDs and the copyright ramifications of storing documents on CD-ROM. And then a couple of years later, I had to change that to DVDs because that was the new technology. And then all of a sudden, it was the World Wide Web, right? And then we had to change the World Wide Web to the internet because no one used World Wide Web anymore. And that's the nature of technology. And that's why it's so exciting, I think, to do what I do and why I like the practice so much. I remember doing a CLE on the cloud and what is the cloud and what are the legal risks and implications of putting your information on the cloud? And are you smart to do that? Or is it an unbelievable risk to do that? And nowadays, everyone has almost everything on the cloud, right? A lot of our junior associates get super confused because companies will say they own third-party software and they bought third-party software. And that confuses them because they weren't around when the predominant software model was to, quote, buy a perpetual license. And that was the way you described it. Today, pretty much everything's offered on a SaaS basis. And the SaaS model has disrupted almost every asset class. So the tech is always changing. And even though the law can be slow to catch up, it's really exciting to work in an area where you're kind of inventing new legal structures and new ways of attacking problems along with your clients. So how does that mesh with lawyers' instinct when negotiating a contract to point to market practice or standard market formulations? Because as you say, in tech, the evolution is fast enough oftentimes that that precedent may not be all that old. Yeah. The interesting balance for tech transactions is it is a transactional practice. And so therefore, a lot of what you're looking for is market-based custom and what is market on certain transactions. But then at the same time, if you're working in an area that is completely disruptive or new, there are no precedents. There isn't a market standard or a shelf of precedents in someone's office that you can use for your deals. And so I'm often telling my associates, they say, have you encountered this problem before? Have you done this before? And no, we haven't. So that's where it gets really interesting because you have to come up with novel approaches and provisions, which really allows you to be creative and thoughtful. And what I do love is that sometimes after you work on a new provision and a contract, you sometimes get to gradually see that language get adopted. 
and become the market standard. And I definitely get a kick out of it when someone cites my own language back to me in a negotiation. I feel like it's oddly satisfying. Talk a little bit about your work with diversity and inclusion at White and Case. Sure. So I think as I mentioned, you know, growing up, I was so acutely aware of the fact that I had disappointed my parents by not being born a son, but also not being a doctor, that I was also raised in a time and a place where I was constantly told to assimilate. That was the way you made it work. I mean, case in point, my first name is Arlene, which is an extremely difficult name, actually, for a lot of Koreans to pronounce. But that was an American name. Not just American, but it sounds very Midwestern. It's very Midwestern. So as a Columbus girl, I think with the anglicized Han at the end, a lot of people expected to see a blonde German person walk up. And I've had clients say that to me and say, oh, we thought you were German because of the way that my name is spelled. So yeah, I mean, that, but that was kind of the point, right? Was that my parents wanted me to fit in. They wanted me to kind of minimize who I was so that I wouldn't cause any issues. And, and I think that is a very immigrant approach, particularly at the time. And so I don't fault them for that. But I think I spent a lot of my early days and early years trying to fit in because it never occurred to me to view my gender or my race as a source of strength or that being a girl or a woman of color is a source of pride or, or even a point of distinction. There's a book by Kenji Yoshino called Covering, and he talks about how we often try to minimize or hide fundamental parts of our identity. And that's exactly what I was trying to do. In fact, I remember somewhat embarrassingly now that I took a course on women in the law at NYU Law. And I remember telling my class and professors that I very much believe that men and women had distinct strengths and distinct roles. And that was just my honest opinion. And I wasn't going to be convinced otherwise. And it's amazing to me. I think I've become so passionate about diversity because I'm the test case. I'm the person who came from one end of the extreme and has moved over. I certainly have so much more to learn as well. But I know it's possible. I know how important it is to be your authentic self. I remember at my prior firm, I would tell people, you know, please don't put me on your diversity committees. I'm not your token woman. I'm not your token Asian. I don't represent everyone who looks like me. I'm just here to do my client work. And I think what happened when I joined White and Case, which happens to be one of the most diverse global law firms in the world, was not only was I in a, a very diverse environment and that kind of changed my view, but I'd also had a confluence of life events happen at that time. I had had two kids in about two years, and each time I was pregnant, one of my parents had passed away. And I think as a result of that stress and trauma, I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I was hospitalized for a rare neurological disorder. And after I came through all of that, I joined White and Case. And I think I had this Jerry Maguire manifesto moment where I realized, you know, life's too short. And, and to enjoy it, you really have to be your authentic self and you have to contribute to the greater good. And so I felt like I had this freedom to show up to work as my authentic self. And I was now the mother of a boy and a girl, and I was responsible for helping to shape their identities. And so I became such an outspoken advocate for women and minorities and LGBT plus people and other underrepresented people that after four years at White and Case, I was appointed to be the chair of the Global Diversity Committee, which was a really incredible privilege and honor but also such a learning experience for me. There was so much that I still had to learn and so much that I still have to learn. And how would you compare your attitude toward these issues when you were an associate to what you see in your associates today? 
Oh, it's so interesting because it was such a different time. And when I tell stories about what it was like to be an associate back then, it was very different. I mean, we were asked to go to gentlemen's clubs as part of client events or after working with clients. And that was something that was just de rigueur. That was done. And when I tell associates that today, the look of slow horror that comes over their face makes me realize how far we've come. We obviously still have so much more to do. But what I love about the environment that we're in today is so much of the research is in now, right? The data is in, the research is in. I'm a database person, obviously. And the studies just show time and time again, diverse teams do better. They are more profitable. They make more money. And if you have a diverse team that's included and feels like they belong, they do better. They make less mistakes. They work harder. They work smarter. And so what I think today's generations benefit from is from all that wisdom and knowledge. And hopefully, we're able to move the needle, although I do think it's been pretty slow. And then finally, tell us a little bit about your life outside of work. Sure. So I am the mother of a beautiful daughter and handsome son, which is how my daughter specifically requested that I refer to them today. But my family is very social. Uh, My husband, Jacob, is a really talented trained chef. And so we love to hang out together and, you know, with friends and share amazing meals with them. And as far as decompressing and quality time, we're a big movie family. We love to watch movies with our kids and either go to the theater or, you know, pop up a big bowl of popcorn at home and watch some movies there. Arlene, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.